This is Mises Weekends with your host, Jeff Dice. Jeff is on the road this week visiting the Ron Paul Institute, where he had the chance to join Dr. Paul and Daniel McAdams on the Liberty Report. Stay tuned for the complete show where they discuss the future of the liberty movement and ask the question, are young Americans abandoning liberty? We are delighted to have Jeff Dice with us today. Jeff, welcome to our program. Thanks very much, Ron. Great to see you. Yes, and now I can't just say you were such and such in the congressional office. You had several jobs. And uh, yeah. you worked your way up from the very bottom of them to the <laughs> chief of staff. And, and uh, when you came in, you did press work. And, you, and like I said, you don't want people with experience on the Hill. I don't know, you weren't a press secretary for anybody before that, were you? No, and I think that was one of the things that really characterized you is that your staff was ide- ideologically aligned with you and interested in the mission and interested in the bigger picture. And rather than a lot of members of Congress get uh, party hacks, yeah. for lack of a better term, they get people assigned to them uh, and their staffs who really almost monitor them as much as help them. But, but even though you were doing press work and you did a fantastic job, that... Uh, I also had you doing work on taxes because I knew you weren't uh, going to tell me that I should vote for higher taxes. <laughs> but you evaluated the tax programs, and sometimes the tax bills were thick and complicated. Yeah. And of course, what I wanted was the bottom line, you know, because they were raising taxes here and loading them over here. And if there was a net tax decrease, generally that's what I wanted. But but they they also ought to want. They also the goal was to have revenue neutral bills, which was a bunch of garbage because that was just who's going to be the victim in the coming new bill. But uh, I know that took a, a lot of energy and uh, patience to go through through all those bills. But uh, thing, things worked out quite well, and we were delighted when uh, you became president of the Mises Institute, and uh, we have worked very well together. But t- today we'd like to talk a little bit about the freedom movement, especially yeah. in the, the libertarian movement, even though the user, words are used interchangeably. And... I've been asked the question so often, and it's almost like an accusation. Yes, Ron, you did good, and you had a lot of young people coming together, and there was a lot of enthusiasm, and they've quoted me often saying, you know, for a true revolution, a freedom revolution, you have to have young people and you have to have music. And we did, you know, during our campaigns. But young people are very important, and... uh, I know well, because I've been close to the Mises Institute and Lou Rockwell, young people are pretty important. And you have continued with this outreach to young people, and you have the schools in the summertime. So I would think you'd have a good perception on exactly where we stand with the young people, because some people would say it's a lost generation. The millennials are gone. They're all with Bernie Sanders. And yet uh, I tend to lean in the opposite direction, but I recognize some of the shortcomings that are going on today. Uh, how, how would you explain it to people who want to know how we're doing with the millennials? Well, we're certainly doing better uh, on a net basis. In other words, there's more kids who understand liberty today than 30 years ago because there's more platforms. It's easier for them to hear about Mises or Rothbard or Hayek or Ayn Rand because there's so many social media platforms, there's so many blogs, there's so many websites. They don't have to go into a physical bookstore like you had to in 1988. Uh, the, The question is whether the liberty movement is growing on pace with the general population on a per capita basis. And that's a very tough question, but I think we have a skewed 
perception of young people because I think social media allows us to hear the loudest people the most. And so we, we hear a lot of news about how young people are trending towards socialism and how they, they feel hopeless with their job prospects, maybe with their marriage prospects, uh, that, that their, their undergraduate education didn't serve them well, perhaps they have a lot of debt, and that they think socialism might, might be attractive. I'm not so sure that's true because I think that young people are actually smarter and in many ways better informed than we were because there's so much access to information. Right. So, so with us, it's a matter of getting them to the right stuff. Right. Daniel, do you have a question for our guest? Well, it's another part of that. You know, a lot of, them, a lot of people did flock to Bernie, and you know, I think a lot of uh, Ron Paul supporters did flock to Bernie. There was an excitement there. They may have been marginal supporters from the beginning, but the other phenomenon that's been a little bit vexing to us is the Trump phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I think we've lost quite a few, at least temp hopefully temporarily, to the Trump movement. Have you, have you seen some of this? I mean, how has it I, affected I us? I think that's true, and I don't think libertarians or liberty-minded people should kid ourselves. Uh, Trump absolutely came in and, and sucked up a lot of oxygen in the air uh, that I think the Ron Paul 2008-2012 campaigns, also the Rand Paul campaign, had created some libertarian energy. And, and Trump uh, stopped a lot of things in his own inimitable way. But I think that at the end of the day, the, the underlying ideas are there. Uh, you can't fool the laws of economics any more than you can fool the laws of gravity or the laws of Mother Nature. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of the really serious structural problems we have with state power, with war and peace, with Iraq and Afghanistan, with the dollar, with entitlements, those things aren't going away. They aren't changing. They're getting worse, if anything, under Trump. And, and so we have to stay here and do the hard work of informing people. And it may not be the sexiest task mm. for young people today. It may, there may be some uh, attraction uh, to, to Trumpism or to Bernieism, uh, but, but we know what's right and we know what works and we know what's truthful. And ultimately, I think that there's, there's a lot more quiet young people out there who agree with us than maybe we imagine. Mm. Jeff, how about telling the audience a little bit about what your programs are like in the summertime? I know you bring young people in, and you have, I think, a lot of people volunteer to be some of the teachers mm -hmm. there. And that's an ongoing uh, activity that you have continued, and I think Lou started those right. programs. Uh, tell, tell the audience a little bit about that program. Well, we run a summer program called Mises University that young people come to, uh, at free to them, uh, and we bring really the best Austrian economists in the country and even from outside the country come and teach that. So it's really an amazing experience for the kids. But, you know, Daniel mentioned Bernie and Trump. I really think that, a, that economics is the key and the foundation for what makes a good liberty advocate, somebody who can see through the BS and cut through the arguments and make their own arguments. And I think when we see young people maybe going off the reservation towards uh, some other ideological perspective, it's oftentimes because they don't understand the economics first mm -hmm. and foremost. So I think, I think learning proper economics is key. And I think that uh, a young person can come to the Mises Institute, learn more in a week <laughs> than they'll learn in four years of, yeah, of economics and undergraduate. So. Right. And that's also key to a lot of what we do. I mean, we do a lot of foreign policy here, but the economic issue is central. You know, central banking and war is, is a critical thing. But I was going to ask, ask you, Jeff, you know, the one thing that's remarkable about the Mises Institute is you have a vast library. If it occupied mm -hmm. physical space, you'd need a huge, huge building, a vast Very library true. of free goods available for the taking beyond the imagination of someone even 20, 30 years ago. 
But are you finding that, ironically, it's difficult to get people to accept these free things? You know, everything is out there, and it's, you know, it's difficult to, uh, to get them to read these things that are not easy. I mean, let's be honest, it's not easy reading. It's astonishing. We have, we have the whole world's knowledge at our fingertips now in these little things. And yet, in many ways, we know less history, less mathematics, less economics than we ever have. So it's, it's a conundrum. Not everybody, uh, young or old, wants to read a 900-page book, and that's okay. Uh, so we, have, we try to have a variety of platforms from, from uh, you know, just sound bites on social media all the way up to really dense reading for people who want to perhaps become an academic in life. Uh, we, we have to uh, tailor our offerings to the market, uh, just like any other uh, organization. But at some point, there, there does need to be an intellectual revolution. We can't just change things politically. Politics follows. And at some point, real, real thought and real intellectual effort, there's some work involved. That, that's true. So we're not trying to reach uh, superficial young people. And we're okay with that. We're trying to reach young people who are maybe a little better equipped uh, mentally, emotionally, to, to uh, accept some responsibility for, uh, for some work. Hmm. You know, most uh, people uh, are aware of the fact that I was motivated a lot by Austrian economics, especially on monetary policy in the 1970s, and decided to uh, speak out. When I first went to Congress in 76, you know, the issue of the Federal Reserve was not well, nobody was very much interested in it. But over the years, of course, it changed. And uh, sure. you were at the office when we talked a lot about it and a lot about auditing the Fed. And people would give me a lot of credit. I maybe deserve a little credit, but where it came from was an institute like the Mises Institute because Murray Rothbard was talking about the monetary policy because I read his stuff. You know, I was influenced right. by him and I knew, I knew the Austrian economists and I knew uh, Leonard Reed and Hans Sandholz and heard Mises lecture and all these uh, giants that talked about it. So I believe it was the intellectual movement that set the stage the fact that when I brought it up, you know, there was a fertile field out there, and I think it needs both. I think you you need that. I don't. I think if I'd have brought that up and the groundwork hadn't been laid by some a group like the Mises Institute and others, I think um, getting the attention that I got would have been much less. Yeah, it's interesting how uh, a couple different events really helped bring our view of monetary policy to the fore. And one was, of course, you being in Congress and caring and having a platform. But then around 2001, we had uh, the, the Enron debacle and Arthur Anderson uh, going down in flames. And all of a sudden, your, your, your committee, the banking committee, became the financial services committee. And all of a sudden, it was a lot more exciting and there was a lot mm -hmm. more regulation and Sarbanes-Oxley occurred. So that committee became a lot more important. And then you fast forward, unfortunately, to 2008, when we had the Lehman Brothers collapse and the, uh, the housing collapse and the stock market collapse all within about a year. Uh, th those two crises uh, really brought the idea of monetary policy more to the fore. So all of a sudden, people were questioning Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke, and you were the, at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, what, what I'd like to do is uh, mention to the audience that going to your website is a great place to get information. And you talked about on the internet, you get it there too, but there's still people like myself, we like to get books. Yes. And, uh, and it was the Fee Foundation that helped me in the early years, but now people can go to the Mises Institute and get practically any book they want uh, dealing with this subject. 
But I do want to go into another subject slightly different than just the educational aspect because there were there was some big news today mm-hmm. uh, uh, coming out in, in the realm of foreign policy, and I know you keep up with that. And that has to do with the so-called firing of Tex Tillerson and the significance of that as well as the appointment of uh, Pompeo, uh, the CIA director, to uh, Secretary of State. To me, this is big news, and I wanted to see if I could get some comments from you on how, how you see this. Well, it's interesting that he lasted a little over a year, which might be a record in this administration. <laughs> and and I, w- what I do know about Pompeo, uh, I, I know somewhat from reading about him when Rand Paul, your son, was, when, was I believe, the only Republican no vote on nominating him to CIA chief. Uh, now we have his number two uh, is is going to become head of CIA, and he is apparently going to become head of State Department. I guess what bothers me the most is that we let the media con us into to following these stories, these soap operas, and we we accept this idea that that personnel is policy. When really we ought to be concerned about executive power, we ought to care about state power, we ought to care about the the unitary executive theory that John Yu and George W. Bush forwarded. We ought to care about uh, what uh, uh, people like Lou Fisher write about, the former Library of Congress, a brilliant scholar, the the usurpation of congressional power throughout the 20th century. So now we find ourselves in this spot where the average guy or gal in America has to wake up in the morning and and care about this woman who's number two at CIA possibly having all this nefarious power over it. Authority, you, you know, executive authority is the issue, not the the, the chess pieces and the players. Right. Daniel, yeah, that is a very good point, and it's easy to get bogged down looking at the trees, looking at the personnel, looking at their backgrounds, and predicting what might happen uh, when the problem is much greater. And we've talked on the show so many times about how Congress is absolutely supine when it comes to exercising constitutional power. That said, it is. I do have to say that it is. I find it very strange at this point in history, at this point in the administration, when the administration is on the cusp of undertaking probably its most challenging diplomatic uh, role, diplomatic uh, endeavor that has taken place, with the exception of the Iran deal, in decades, I think, going back to the end of the Cold War, you're going to try to negotiate a peace treaty with North Korea, and you jettison uh, somewhat hapless, but nevertheless, I wouldn't say a neoconservative, uh, Secretary of State to someone who was so demonstrably more hawkish uh, on everything across the board, a person who wants to prosecute WikiLeaks, who thinks they should be in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's astonishing to me as you embark upon this difficult journey that you would switch over to this, you know, I just throw my hands up. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting how uh, Trump is very much an empty vessel. And on the one hand, that's good because he doesn't have, I think, the worst instincts that Hillary Clinton might have had with respect to, let's say, North Korea. The flip side is that he's malleable and uh, people can come along and whisper in his ear and uh, probably talk him into doing some things that he otherwise might not be inclined to do. And, and, And the worst thing about it all is that the American public and the American media play a role. We're complicit in this in the sense that when he dropped that Moab, for instance, in mm. Afghanistan, the press cheered him. And they said, he's finally doing something presidential. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that dropping a bomb as a presidential act, but meeting with the North Korean regime is somehow uh, uh, you know, a, a big mistake because no one's done it since uh, the, the Korean War and no other president's done it. So, so we create 
perverse incentives on our end, and, and we're, we're complicit in that. And you pointed out Rachel Maddow, the great progressive, is the one who's screaming out, dare go meet these people. No one's done it before. How progressive. Yeah. You know, um, be, before we close, I just want to mention the, uh, the risk I see ahead with this appointment. Uh, f- first off, uh, this has been planned. We've had hints. And he has spoken out very favorably for Michael uh, Pompeo. And now he's moving up the ladder. But the person close to this little group is Tom Cotton. I think Cotton's going to continue to be moved up in the ladder. I wouldn't be surprised before this administration is over in the first four years that he will be uh, in the administration. And these guys are hawks like no, no other group against Iran and North Korea. So it's interesting to see what will happen, especially the Iranian thing. I think that is rather risky. Pompeo is on the side of saying, you know, uh, yeah, we need to get that Snowden come back here and face trial and then get elected and then get the death penalty. I mean, he's already made up his mind. This to me, I, I see this as, as pretty blatantly dangerous. And uh, I might be overstating the viewpoint that, that you have. But if you care to make a comment, go ahead. Well, cotton, cotton is bad news. But what Americans don't understand, in my view, is... Iran is not Iraq 10 years ago. Iran has an actual navy. Iran has an actual military. And all I would say is, you know, Rick Steves does the European Travel Show. He has a show available free on YouTube on Iran. And if you take the hour or so to watch that show, you'll see Iranians in a totally different light. It humanizes them. And you'll see this is a big, beautiful country, modern in many ways. And the idea that that this is our deadly enemy is is the only way you could say it's not bizarre is if your populace is just totally dumbed down to the point where they, they, they think of, of Iranians as some sort of caricature, but it's just not that way. Yeah. Well, Jeff, uh, we, we need to close now because of time. We could go on and it would be a lot of fun, but I want to make sure the audience uh, knows how to find you on your website, the Mises Institute, for getting information and looking into the educational opportunity. But I want to thank you very much for being with us today in person. We don't get to do this too often in person. We usually talk to people remotely. But thank you very much for being with us today. No, thanks a million for having me. And I want to thank our viewers today for tuning in today to this special program. And please come back soon. Subscribe to Mises Weekends via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And check out the Ron Paul Liberty Report live every weekday on the Ron Paul Liberty Report YouTube channel.